Welcome to Invest in Brazil, your podcast on the ins and outs of corporate governance and capital markets in one of the world's most important developing economies. My name is Fábio Coelho, and I am the CEO of AMEC, the Brazilian Association of Capital Market Institutional Investors. And today, I'll be your host. In the corporate world, there are several causes for conflicts of interest. But in the past few years, related party transactions or RPTs have risen above all others as a consistency source of controversy and concern for investors in Brazil. RPTs are deals between parties that belong to the same group, whether they are companies or individuals. They can range from something as simple as sharing premises or hiring the same third-party providers to even more complex business, such as transactions involving large sums for royalties and naming rights. The bigger the deal, the more relevant it becomes, and thus the more transparent it should be to avoid excesses and reassure investors that business is being conducted at arm's length transaction. Unfortunately, that has not been the rule in Brazil. There are few reasons for this. First, there are few true corporations on the local stock exchange, which means controlling or reference shareholders have more power in their hands. Minority investors, therefore, are on the weaker and often have little room to overturn unfavorable decisions. Second, regulation on the matter isn't very strict. Currently, Brazilian law does not set the ground rules for the creation of governance committees to evaluate those transactions before they happen, nor does it create demands for AGM approval on most deals. The lack of standardization also makes it difficult for shareholders to look for legal compensation when they feel they have cause. In other words, related party transactions can easily spark conflicts in Brazil, And these are definitely not easy to solve. Unsurprisingly, some of the most controversial deals in recent years include related party transactions. But that does not mean that the local market has not evolved somewhat. Self-regulation played an important role here. For instance, The high governance listing segment, Novo Mercado, requires companies to have an RPT policy in place, and companies with good governance track records are generally very transparent when announcing such deals. For example, they adopt best practices like third-party valuation reports for the transactions and even present controlling shareholders from voting in assemblies that will debate these operations. These examples show there is an effort to shine more light on such deals, which is even more relevant now that more companies are going public in the local market. To discuss what improvements would make related pirate transactions fairer in Brazil, we invited Teresa Barger, co-founder and CEO of Cartica Management, to our podcast. Welcome, Teresa. Thank you for having me, Fabio. Um, just to get started with the conversation, uh, investors say related party transactions are one of the most relevant conflicts of interest in Brazil. 
What improvements do you think could be put in place to curb wrongdoing? You know, I guess I disagree that regulatory issues are at the heart of the conflict. It is the behavior of controlling shareholders that is the center of the issues. Uh, regulations just can't fix all problems. And if a management team is determined, they can often circumvent rules. What I really prefer is if there's a general ethical requirement that states that the company must be run for the equal good of all shareholders. And then certainly in addition a broad, to a broader rule, um, more specific rules can be added, but the broader rule makes it easier to bring legal action against a company if it was clearly favoring its controlling shareholders over its minority shareholders. That's an interesting perspective. But looking for some best practice, which guidelines do you think a company should follow? to ensure a RPT is really fair and transparent? Well, I want to say that I do think there should be some regulation, but it should be principles-based and lay out that um, duty to the corporation and all of its shareholders be, before any duty to the controlling shareholders. Um, but what I have uh, seen... But then, of course, a lot of what's going to go on is going to be at the company level. And what I see working pretty well elsewhere is the requirement to have a review of any related party transaction that's above some minimal amount, uh, financial amount. And then this can begin with a third party evaluation of the contract or purchase or sale agreement or proposed tie up or branding royalties or things like that. Then... Um, obviously good practice that the RPT should be reviewed by a board committee. Um, and since best practice is that the audit committee should be 100% staffed with independent directors, it usually makes sense that the audit committee is the place where the review of any proposed RPT takes place. Uh, so that's the, really the most common. And um, it's not perfect since independent directors can still feel pressure, but it is a good start if the audit committee is 100% independent and then they um, have a complete say, uh, yes or no say over the related party transaction. But they need to be empowered for that. Right. And do you think this should be documented in any way? So the, the dossier that is given to the RPT uh, needs to uh, be available uh, at least to the entire board. And then the minutes of the audit committee would usually also be available um, to the board. And then if there were any outside um, a, a lawsuit, heaven forbid, I mean, we don't love lawsuits, but let's say there were, those minutes then would be discoverable um, in a legal process, right? So they're very important that the whole thing be documented and, and minuted throughout the process. And on the other hand, Teresa, what are the red flags that investors should uh, observe in a related party transactions, uh, considering your experience on that? Um, the biggest issue we see is usually disclosure. Um, we don't know what we don't know. So um, if they disclose self-dealing, that will often go through the proper channels. But there are issues that might fly under the radar that are worrisome 
And uh, for example, we had a case in India where the company refused to rotate auditors on the schedule that was um, set forward by their securities commission. So only then did we look deeply into the auditor and it turned out that the audit partner was a man from a very poor family and actually a lower caste. And his education was completely paid for by this controlling family of the listed company. He was like a adoptee almost of the family. So when the regulator forced them finally to rotate auditors, this accountant left this firm joined another small firm. So then that firm could be hired and they could say they changed audit firms. But that individual audit partner who is essentially kind of owes his whole professional life to this family was the auditor. And they were clearly trying to obfuscate the situation and we sold our shares. Whoa, that was a, a very particular case, right? It's just uh, such a um, wildly uh, inappropriate case, uh, but it shook our complete uh, faith that the family really knew how to treat everybody well. You have already mentioned about regulation uh, limitation and that not everything should be written. But do you believe there is any model that could be used as an inspiration for improving Brazilian regulatory model? Well, the issue of controlling shareholders really only exists in emerging markets. Um, Europe has many family-owned listed companies, but the families typically own only between 5% and 15% of the shares, not 51% of the voting shares. Um, the U.S. now recently has many founder-controlled companies, but uh, they are generally just the first generation and self-dealing isn't the issue. Um, although disenfranchisement of shareholders is a huge irritant to us. Um, so uh, the, it, this isn't a place that um, company, countries that have had um, you know, hundreds of years of experience are, are have dealt with. Um, the Indians have many, many regulations, and I'm just not sure that's a good model to follow. I, I sometimes feel that there's so many regulations, there might as well not be any. I mean, obviously, that's an exaggeration, but one can drown in bureaucracy and still not avoid corruption. Um, and I think India is pretty much an example of that. Um, as I stated before, I prefer a principle-based choice approach um, where the simple quality of the simple uh, concept of equality of in treatment of all shareholders is enforced. And so that's a little bit more like what the UK has. Um, in, in most countries, companies can be sued for breaching their own bylaws. And so if the bylaws included fair treatment provisions, that could also be helpful. Although obviously one doesn't want to sue companies. Um, but if you just make it unlawful, people can be careful about not slipping into bad behavior. Institutional investors have been paying more attention to RPTs. Some are even uh, drafting specific policies to deal with them. Do you think that this awareness could help strengthen the governance around such deals? Well, you know, let's be honest. Most institutional investors do not have time to do anything other than vote their proxies. 
Um, they've got very little staff and the staff that's voting proxies will take the advice of the services like ISS and Glass-Lewis on whether the proposed RPTs have been investigated and found fair. And that will do little to correct ongoing RPTs that never come up for a vote, like when a family's been paid royalties for land or a brand or a process for years and years and years in the past. For that, you need activists or maybe simply very active shareholders who can convince the controllers that a good governance premium that they might get could pay them more than the unique privileges that they enjoy now. Uh, but institutional investors uh, by themselves, given you know how much consolidation there has been in the investor community, they're now just becoming larger and larger and larger, multi multi billion dollar complexes. They don't, they just don't have too many companies in too little time. So I wouldn't count on them, unfortunately. Regarding the uh, family companies. How do you see the difference in the way RTPs are treated? I mean, uh, you were talking about the difference between a more developed market and emerging ones. Yes. So um, let me just be clear that when you look at the data globally, generally uh, family-owned companies provide better stock performance, price performance than non-family owned companies. And so that is true in Europe and it's also true in the emerging markets. And there are a lot of good reasons for that. Families are very positive for companies for many, many reasons. Um, and so the major downside for these companies is that our family owned is this related party transaction issue or what, what, what might be called kind of insider dealing um, if it were just the management company, uh, sorry, the management group itself. Um, so uh, family companies can be really good, uh, but dealing with families that own 51% of the voting shares is is just another level of complexity. Um, if there isn't a belief among the investor community that that family is really going to treat all investors, their, whether they're family or not family, equally. Um, and so we do see that, and, and it's a little hard to get the data on this, but generally the data shows that companies where the family does treat minority shareholders fairly fetch a higher premium in the market than those that do not. The, so companies where there is a great asymmetry will generally trade at a discount. We're looking at a company in Mexico now. We think it trades at a 40% discount for governance reasons. And the major governance reasons is literally, I mean, a structural self-dealing um, by, the, by the controlling family. Um, and it's a huge, huge gap. And Teresa, going to the final question here, and thinking about the role of shareholders, uh, being an investor, what scares you most when you have to deal with uh, a related party transaction? So I think that um, one of the things that is uh, important is that 
the shareholders understand there's a process for RPTs in place, that there's a limit on the kinds of uh, activities the company will engage in that involve related party transactions, um, and that the uh, shareholders are given uh, the sense of comfort that that will not be abused. Because, you know, in emerging markets, we don't really mind related party transactions if, let's say, you're a beer company and the best person to distribute your beer because they're the biggest distributor in the country is your cousin's company. Well, that's okay. Some of these countries are pretty small and it's possible that your cousin is the best guy for the job. I don't mind that. I just want it to be documented and go through the right procedures. And I want to know that there isn't a better distribution company for your beer, right? And so um, we don't have any objection in principle to related party transactions, um, but we uh, very, very much want there to be a reason for them. And, um, and you know, it's, 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 it's more common in smaller markets where you don't have a lot of different parties providing services. A country as big as Brazil or India or something, it's, it's less necessary. And that was a great conversation. Thank you for so many invaluable inputs, Teresa. It was a really pleasure having you here. Thank you, Fabian. <laughs>